Well, as we uh, move on from the Gospel of Mark, we are entering a new season uh, at uh, Christ Community Presbyterian Church, and we are going to be looking at Paul's letter to the Philippians. And I'm going to go ahead and read it, and then we can pray. Um, before I do, usually I do a little pre-introduction, then, we, then, I, then I read, then we pray, then I do another introduction. And so we're going to do our introduction is going to be a little extended, so I'm going to go ahead and read uh, Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 to 6. Hear God's word. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God and all my remembrances of you always and every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. And we ask that you would impress it upon our hearts, that we would see Jesus, that we would be uh, that we would rejoice, be full of joy in the gospel. Help me, your servant, forgive my sins, use me despite me, and may your name be lifted up. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to give a little bit of an extended introduction as we look as we begin uh, our study in Paul's letter to the Philippians. Uh, I, I just a uh, by way of reference, who is Paul? Well, Paul's the apostle uh, that did much of uh, the, the bulk of the writing of the, the, the New Testament, actually. Um, other than the gospel accounts, he's the, he's the next uh, most prolific writer. Much of our theology and doctrine is, in, uh, is thanks to the apostle Paul. Paul was a persecutor of the church. Of course, he was uh, one who was... Um, anti-Christ, if you will, and yet Christ met him on the road to Damascus, blinded him, and revealed himself to him and said, I'm going to use you for my purposes and glory. And so Paul became uh, the missionary par excellence. He was the one who went out uh, to, to Greece and Rome and uh, really around the world of that, <laughs> that world of that day. And he went to Macedonia, to uh, uh, area of Asia Maya or Greece, um, area of Greece, and there was a, a city there called Philippi. He went to Philippi. And you'll remember the story. We did look at this in the book of Acts. Um, there was uh, the, the story of the planting of the church of Philippi. He met a woman down by the river. The, 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 Jewish, uh, the Jewish church, uh, the, or the Jews of that day, did not have a synagogue in Philippi, and so they didn't have a place of worship. So they would go down to the river, and they would, they would uh, pray and worship there. And Paul, as was his custom, and he would go to the synagogues wherever he went first, and then he would go out to uh, the, the Gentile community. But he went to um, the river, and there met a woman by the name of Lydia. Lydia uh, was a God-fearer, uh, not, not Jewish by descent, but was a God-fearer and was down by the river. She was a prominent woman in the city. Anyway, she heard Paul and was converted and heard that the church started in her home. She probably had a fairly significant home. But while they were in Philippi, of course, you'll remember uh, there was a young slave girl 
whom uh, she would speak oracles, the, 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 the spirit, uh, there was a demon uh, that was possessing her and would speak oracles through her. She was possessed by this demon. And this girl and demon followed, uh, uh, followed behind Paul and uh, the rest of his entourage as they were going to Philippi, and they were kind of mocking uh, uh, Paul and his message. At the same time, they were, they were acknowledging that Jesus was Lord. Anyway, Paul eventually cast the demon out of this girl, but the girl was uh, 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 used by, she was a slave girl, she was used by the town to, to get money. She was, uh, she was at the local temple, and they would use her uh, and her demon. And once the demon was removed, uh, she could no longer be used. Anyway, this upset the town. Paul was thrown in prison in Philippi, you'll remember. Um, and then there was an earthquake, and, and uh, uh, eventually the, the, the jailer uh, came to the Lord uh, in Philippi, and they wanted nothing to do with Paul and the apostles. So the town kicked out Paul and the apostles, or, or Paul and his entourage, and they left the city of Philippi. But in Philippi was this little church, this little church. Throughout the rest of Paul's ministry, we uh, think he visited uh, Philippi five times, around there, five or six times. It was, by all accounts, his favorite church, if he's allowed to have favorites. Uh, he was deeply tied to Philippi. He, they were uh, very much loved by him. Um, and so we see this in his letter to the Philippians. It is full of affection, uh, full of affection. Uh, we think that Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians from Rome, though there's some debate. Uh, he could have been imprisoned in Rome, or he could have been imprisoned in Ephesus, or possibly in Caesarea. And there's debate on the issue. Tradition has him in Rome. And I just wanted to, uh, to read a little bit uh, to you um, uh, from the end of the book of Acts to kind of give you a flavor for where Paul was at when he was writing this letter to the Philippians. Uh, at the end of the book of Acts, in chapter 28, sort of the end of uh, the missionary journeys of Paul, uh, it ends with, without any sort of resolution. But this is about the, uh, the, the depth of the resolution. But here was Paul. He was in Rome. He was imprisoned. And this is what it says at the end of Acts, starting in verse 16. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the custom of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. Now, just as a note, so he's traveled from Jerusalem now all the way to Rome, and he is making, because he's a Roman citizen, he can appeal to Caesar. Uh, so he's making his appeal to Caesar. So he's under guard in a home in Rome. And uh, he's met by all sorts of people. The Jews come to him. They hear him out. They're divided. Some believe. Some don't believe. There's a rejection by the Jews. And then in verse 30, 
It says this, he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And I share that with you because you have to understand wherever Paul went, whether he was in prison, whether he was in, uh, you know, down by the river, whether he was in the synagogue, whether he was in Athens, you know, you know, in the highest of uh, intellectual places, he proclaimed the gospel. That's what he did. That's who he was. And as we look at the, at the letter to the Philippians, what I want us to see is what drove him, what, what compelled him to proclaim the gospel. And I would argue it's because of the joy that it brought to him. It, it dripped out of him, if you will. It was uh, uh, something that he uh, was so compelled by. And so as he's in Rome and he's writing to the church, um, we have to ask, why, did, why do we have this letter? Well, we have a very specific reason. That is, uh, the Philippian church, while he was in prison in Rome, sent a gift to him through a man by the name of Epaphroditus. We'll meet him later in the letter to the Philippians. Uh, but Epaphroditus came, risked his life, almost died to bring a gift from the Philippians. And so Paul is here in prison, and he's overcome with gratitude. And that, that was the impetus uh, for this letter uh, to the church at Philippi. It's interesting because, you know, when you get a gift, it is customary. <clears throat> Just, I'm telling myself this. It's customary and ought to be the way that we send thanks. We do that, right? We little thank you notes. And I know some of you are very good at that. I would say I'm not as good at that. Um, but uh, that's kind of a, a custom that we have. You write a, a, a simple note of thanks. It's a polite thing to do. Paul's letter to, of thanksgiving is not just some little note that says, thank you for this gift and sends it back. Um, just by way of illustration, uh, I, my family, we support various people in ministry, uh, missionaries and, and the like. And sometimes you'll get letters of thanks, mostly form letters, which is understandable. You get a, get a report what's going on in the ministry, you get a thanks, and then you get an ask, right? Like that's sort of how they go. And most of the time, it's a lovely form letter that shares some aspect of the ministry. But occasionally, you'll get a note at the end of the letter or an entire letter associated with that note, personal, handwritten even, note, saying, oh, all sorts of personal notes, how much we miss you. Um, and it's written there because why? Because you are friends with the missionary, right? Like it's not just somebody you randomly give money to, but it's you have a relationship, a friendship with them. And so it is here with the letter that Paul writes to the Philippians. It's a letter of friendship, of deep love and gratitude, of joy and thanksgiving. And that's what this letter is about. It's so much more than a formal thank you note. And unlike his other letters, many of his other letters, its primary purpose is not correction. You know, if you look at 1 Corinthians, let's say, or Galatians, there's major error going on. Uh, and there's, it's a letter that is full of sort of correction and instruction. Um, 
It is also not a theological education. It's not like his letter to the Romans, right? The letter to the Romans is this glorious theological exposition on the gospel. If you want to get the fullest expression of the gospel uh, in one letter, go read Romans. That's not his letter to the Philippians. Though, in both of these cases, there is some correction, and there certainly is instruction and deep theology, rich theology. In fact, we're going to come to uh, chapter 2 of Philippians, and we're going to see that passage that we all memorized. I could ask some of the kids to come up and say, uh, Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who? And we could go on, and, and, and you'll see the rich theology or Christology, that theology of the person and work of Jesus Christ maybe one of the greatest passages. And yet it's not primarily a theological uh, teaching letter. It's a letter of friendship. His primary purpose, his goal in this letter is he is a friend sharing with this church his great joy. He wants to share his joy and his passion for the Lord Jesus. As I said earlier, the letter kind of drips with that joy and that passion, and that commitment to Jesus. So no matter circumstances he's in, no matter what he faces, no matter uh, what trials he's in, whether he's in chains or not in chains, he is overcome with joy. And he wants to rejoice in his friends in Philippi who are partners in the gospel. And he wants them to be encouraged and have that same joy and passion as they face their own trials, as they face their own persecution, even as they face possible conflict within the life of the church. And we know from the letter that they must have faced some sort of opposition. We don't know all the details of the opposition. Um, but they faced some opposition. Philippi, as far as cities go, was a very prominent city in uh, sort of the greater Roman Empire, if you will. It was a Roman city, and that meant something. So it was, uh, you know, it was, it was taken over by the Romans under Philip, um, but it was eventually planted sort of as a, a Roman um, city, meaning that they were, there were military officers who were given land there and were uh, actual citizens of Rome. So it was uh, taking uh, the Roman citizens and planting them uh, in Philippi. And because of that, there was a great deal of patriotism towards uh, Rome, but not just patriotism, but worship of the emperor. So, so we know that in the early church, the earliest confession was Jesus Christ is Lord. And it was in direct opposition to the Roman uh, confession, which was Caesar is Lord. And so it is likely that the Philippian church faced persecution because of their lack of patriotism and worship of Caesar. We see this uh, played out in, 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 um, in Philippians uh, Paul says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or, in, or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, 
and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So you can see the conflict is conflict with Rome, conflict uh, with uh, those who would reject the gospel. The best summary of Paul's heart for the Philippian church might be found toward the end of his letter. As he is wrapping things up, he says these words, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Emphasis on always. Rejoice in the world, in, in the Lord, in whatever circumstances you find yourself in. And as we begin this letter, this is my hope that we here at CCPC might be marked by joy as I've reflected over the course of this, on the course of this year and the challenges that we've faced, um, and this season of life that we've lived. I, I have to confess, much of it has not been marked by joy. I'm going to be honest. It's been marked by grief. It's been marked by tears. It's been marked by frustration. It's been marked by anger, exasperation, discouragement. Maybe it's just me, but that's been my account of the past year. Um, Much of the past year. And some of those feelings are not in and of themselves wrong or even incompatible with joy. Certainly grief, anger, exasperation is something the Lord Jesus himself felt. Yet, Jesus said for the joy that was said of Jesus for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross, despised the shame. And I want us to explore together over the coming months what it means to rejoice in the Lord always. What does that look like for us? What does that look like? What it means in all circumstances, even through tears and grief. What does it mean to have joy? Uh, May it be said, this is my prayer, that at CCPC, that we would be called a joy-filled church. And so, to begin this exploration of joy in all circumstances, I want us to look at the greeting of Paul's letter to his friend, his friends in Philippi, uh, I'm going to do this hopefully briefly. It was an extended introduction, so I'll keep my, the main body of the sermon shorter. But that was a way to introduce the book. But I do want to look at the introduction. So really focusing in on these first few verses, uh, though I'll touch on some of the other verses as well. Uh, so we're going to be looking at, at, at the greeting. And there's three things that I want us to have to consider as we think about having joy in all circumstances, rejoicing always. The first is joy as servants. What does it mean to have joy as servants? Second, what does it mean to have joy as God's people? What does it mean to be God's people and to have joy? Third, what does it mean for us to have joy in the gospel? Uh, Sort of the fountain, if you will, or the foundation of our joy, joy in the gospel. But first, joy as servants. Uh, There are various themes that we will trace throughout this letter, and one of the dominant themes is the idea of humble service, humble service. 
And we see here at the very beginning of the letter, uh, though it's written by the Apostle Paul, and it clearly expresses Paul's thoughts, Paul's, uh, uh, you know, his affections. It's a very personal letter. Nevertheless, it says what? Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Now, Timothy, uh, you might call him a, a signer of the letter, wasn't the author of the letter. We don't know exactly in what fashion he was he played a role in the letter. Maybe he was what we would call an amanuensis, somebody who was a, a secretary who uh, the Apostle Paul dictated to and, and Timothy wrote. That's possible. It's possible, too, that Timothy would be the one to deliver the letter. Paul will express in a, in a, little, uh, in a little bit in the letter that he desires for t- to send Timothy for their encouragement. And so maybe he's the one who brings the letter with Epaphroditus. That's possible. Um, but it's a letter from Paul and Timothy. And this is what Paul says of Timothy, and I really love this. It, this is later in the letter. Paul says, For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. That's why he wants to send uh, Timothy. He wants to send Timothy because he doesn't know anybody better who could go and who would be genuinely concerned with their welfare. It shows the heart of Timothy, but I think it gets at the heart of what he, Paul calls themselves here. They are servants of Christ Jesus. Their desire is to serve. And this word servant, as you might know, is a stronger word than just servant. It is the word for slave. Uh, it's the word uh, douloi or doulos. It is a better translated slave. It would have been in context understood in that sense. Uh, the slave in the Roman, Greco-Roman world would uh, have been a common thing. I already expressed and described one certain slave girl in Philippi who was demon-possessed, uh, who was probably in the church at Philippi. Uh, the, what Paul and Timothy here are saying is we're servants, we're slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I do think we need to figure out what it means because it's a tough word, I think, for our context. Um, we obviously have our own national sin of slavery, of the enslavement of Africans, and uh, I think that, that taints any time we go to Scripture, any time we look at this word to understand it. Um, it wasn't a good thing in the ancient world either, uh, and you'll hear Paul talk about uh, the issue of slavery. But Paul, in his ch- using this language of slavery, is transforming the word a little bit. He is saying, I'm a slave of the Lord. And there's a distinction there. What does it mean for Paul and Timothy to be slaves or servants of the Lord? He is making a positive statement. Paul and Timothy are wearing this as a badge of honor. And the way this is possible is on account of who it is that they serve. They are bond servants or slaves of Christ Jesus. Yes, they are no longer their own. They belong to him. In that sense, they are servants or slaves. They belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And that means that they are called to go where he goes, to, to do what he calls them to. They are bound to Jesus. Nevertheless, the title bears a distinct difference in that they indeed belong to the Lord Jesus. They are his, and he is theirs. They are redeemed and loved by God in Christ. They enjoy fellowship with God and eternal salvation and hope of glory and all the blessings of heaven. And being servants of the Lord Jesus means being an instrument in their Savior's service. It reminds me of Psalm 8410, where the psalmist says, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Right? What the, what the psalmist is saying is he's saying, I'd rather play the least, 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 least lowest role in the, in the, in the dwelling place of God than live anywhere else in abundance. So it is for Paul and Timothy. They are servants of the Most High. And of course, there is joy and delight and freedom and blessing and dignity and worth as servants of Jesus Christ. Paul and Timothy were also just following Jesus. They were following his own humble service. In the high Christology of Philippians chapter 2 that we'll look at later, and which you all memorized, it says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a doulos the form of a slave, the form of a servant. He humbled himself, even becoming obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. So Timothy and and Paul are saying, we are servants just as the Lord Jesus came and served us. Jesus said in the Gospel of Mark, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Let me ask the question, Do we view ourselves as servants here at CCPC? Is that the badge that we wear? I am a servant of the Lord. I am one who who lives to serve. Do we see it maybe as a, a necessary thing? Yeah, the Lord calls us to service, but it's kind of a burden to be a servant. Or do we see it as an opportunity that we have to rejoice in the Lord? I am a servant of the Lord, and I get to serve just as the Lord served me. Is this the opportunity that I have? Uh, I I have to share this story with you. Uh, This past weekend, I was at Presbytery, which is the group of elders of all the local PCA churches in the area. We get together uh, three times a year, and I got to hear uh, from a missionary. Occasionally, we'll have reports from missionaries, and there was a missionary there. He was a remarkable man from South Korea, but when he came to the United States, and uh, I think uh, during when uh, after September 11th, he decided he wanted to serve the country, and so he joined the military at age 39. And he didn't get like some high position. He was he wasn't an officer or anything. He joined. Uh, but he did become a medic, and so he went to Afghanistan. 
And it was hard, as you can imagine. It was very hard. He saw all sorts of death and destruction. And being a medic, he spent a lot of time healing folks. And it was, it was, he, he showed us pictures that I wish I, they were very hard to get out of my mind. It was, it was a very difficult thing for him. And I, he was struggling with, with being there. And a man came to him. They don't usually care for the locals, but this man walked I don't know how many miles and days, but he had a foot infection, and he walked, and he walked, and he walked, and he came, and they asked if they could help him, and so they said, yeah, we can, we'll help him, and he came in, and he saw uh, this, this fellow, his name uh, was, was William, um, and William said he, he kneeled down to this guy, and the foot was just, I saw a picture of it, it was t- terrible, um, and he healed it. And then he realized he had to send this guy home. He had to walk, walk. And so uh, it was at that moment that the Lord broke his heart. And he said, I need, to, I need to help these Afghan people. They have nothing. And so he ended up starting, starting a ministry right there as a, as a soldier. And he ended up getting, you know, asking for shoes and all sorts of things uh, to help. But he ended up doing uh, much more than that. Uh, but I just thought about that because there he was. He had come to the realization that as he was helping this young man or this man with his foot, that this is exactly what the Lord Jesus did. He came and he washed our feet and he served those who needed desperate help, you and me. I'll t- I want to tell more about that guy, but I'm going to leave it there. William Sayo. Um, so I just want us to think about what does it mean to be, have joy in service to the Lord? But there's a second thing, joy as God's people. You'll notice that the Apostle Paul says to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Saints, uh, we can rush over that word. The word means holy ones. Um, it was a common title for the people of Israel in the Old Testament because the word holy meant those that were set apart by God for God. They were God's people. Uh, right? So the holy ones or saints were those who were set apart by God. And it was not a special distinction. I think, you know, in, in some traditions, we'll, we'll even talk this way. We'll say, oh, so-and-so is such a saint. Uh, let me say, to all the saints in West Hartford at CCPC, that includes all you who believe. Uh, we're all saints. We're all those who've been set apart by God who are holy ones, uh, God's people. These holy ones set apart by God are facing opposition from their Roman and Greek neighbors in Philippi. And Paul is reminding them here in the greeting something he will bring out later. He is going to say, Philippi is ultimately not your home. You are a holy people set apart by God for God. We even have a hint of that in verse 6 here. Uh, It's printed for you. He says that I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul's saying, there is something to look forward to that will happen. Throughout the letter, Paul talks about the coming day of the Lord when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Uh, remember that from Philippians chapter 2. But very specifically in chapter 320, he says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
who will transform our lowly body to be like glory, a glor- his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So for Paul, there is joy in being God's holy people, God's people, because our hope is knowing that he is coming again to bring us home. I think I've said this a few times. Joy comes through the horizon of hope. It's hard to have joy when our eyes are fixed here, when our eyes are fixed on this world, because what happens is all we see is the problems of the world. All we see is the struggles that we face. All we see is our own sin. All we see is the conflict that we have with one another, with our family, with our friends, with our relationships. All of it, that's all we see when our eyes are fixed here. And what Paul is doing is he's saying, lift up your eyes and look, there's a horizon of hope. There's a home for us. You are God's people, holy, set apart for him. And because of that, no matter the circumstances that we find ourselves in, we can have joy. Joy. But there is a second aspect that Paul will talk about with regard to being the holy ones, the the saints, the people of God. And it has to do with unity. It has to do with unity. Notice the word all here. You're going to see this word throughout Paul's letter. It says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Notice, notice later on, I thank my God and all my remembrances of you always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Did you notice all the times it said all or always? I think the Apostle Paul, and we'll see this as we go out, that he is emphasizing that there is no one left out. They're all together. And he'll use this throughout his letter. In chapter 2, he will ground his call to humble service in this. He says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being of full accord and of one mind. Now, he didn't use the word all there, In fact, he uses this if-any kind of language. He's saying something to this effect. He's saying, if you have even the smallest inkling of the salvation that is yours in Christ, if you have any inkling of the love of God the Father for you, if you have any inkling of the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, if you have any sense at all of the affection and sympathy that you have for one another, he says, then complete my joy. Make it whole. Let's make the love complete. Let's come together. Let's be one. Let's consider that unity that we have. No one is left out. No one is on the sidelines. Not one part of the body is missing. And did you notice the way you accomplish it is through humble, joyful service? First point we looked at. Let me ask the question for us here at CCPC. What does it look like for CCPC to be joyfully united? What does it look like? I'll be honest, church isn't always an easy place to be. 
It's easy to feel marginalized in a church. It's easy to feel left out in a church, to feel as though there are various levels of being insiders and circles and cliques. It's easy to feel that, isn't it, as, as a church member? I know we've all felt that at different times. I remember receiving a letter as a, uh, from a visitor at my old church, uh, came to the church office, and it was a really helpful letter. The person expressed sadness that when they visited, no one greeted them. And they wanted us to know. They felt left out. Another man came up to me after a sermon. It was a sermon on the gifts of the body in 1 Corinthians where it says, you know, we all play a different parts. Some of us have different roles, right? And that's true. And he came up to me after the service, and he was a broken man. He had many, many issues, and he wasn't somebody people loved, to be frank. And he said to me, he says, Rob, you know, I feel like a nose hair. That's what he said. I feel like a nose hair. What's my role in this church? What's my place? Can we start to imagine what it would be like for us as a body to be joyfully one, where all of us together, that there is nobody who is left out, so to speak? As a reminder, Paul has great affection for the Philippians, and in many ways, they were joyfully one. We see his, his love for their particip- participation in the gospel with him. He gives thanks to it. And yet, we'll see later in the letter that there are inklings of disunity. And he's concerned. Don't, don't let that define you. As we continue to study this letter, I want us to consider what it means to have joy, all of us, together as one. Finally, and this is where I'm going to conclude, all of this is only possible because of the joy of the gospel Joy in the gospel. This little letter of Paul's, as I've already said, drips with joy, and you'll see that. I I liken it to a giant ice cream cone from Dorman's Dairy Dream in Thomaston, Maine. Uh, It is so big. Literally, you say, can I have a single scoop? And it's like up to here. And there's no way that you can eat it all. And it just drips and falls down, and it's covering your hand. And and that's how it is for the Apostle Paul with joy. It just kind of covers everything here in the text. It's like a giant, giant wondrous love that he has. And we see it here in the greeting. It's a common greeting of Paul's, his love of the gospel, his joy in the gospel. It's a common greeting. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace. What is grace? We say it a lot, grace this, grace that. What is grace? Grace is that unmerited favor of God towards us. It's that love that he shows us that is not deserved. It's his salvation. Interestingly, Apostle Paul uh, doesn't explain the gospel much in his letter. He doesn't. He doesn't give an explanation of the gospel. It drips from every portion of the, of the letter. In fact, Paul uses the word gospel more in this letter than in any other writing that he writes. It's used more. And yet he doesn't explain what the gospel is. This is a letter of friendship and exhortation. He declares it. 
He rejoices in it. He's moved by it to serve and to proclaim it. And this is his hope for the Philippians, that they would likewise have the gospel at the center, the good news, grace to you and peace. God's unmerited favor that makes peace by the blood of Jesus. And what is the good news? The Lord Jesus humbled himself, came to earth, became his servant, died for our sins, rose again from the dead, ascended to heaven, sits at the right hand of the Father, and is coming again to bring us home to glory. And Paul has all confidence in this. He says, I'm sure of this. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion, the day of Christ. This is the hope of the gospel. Friends, there's no greater joy than knowing that we are no longer slaves, douloi, doulas, to sin. But we are slaves to Christ, set free from the power of hell by the power and mercy of God. It is his joy in the gospel that enables Paul to serve with all joy, to go out and proclaim the good news with all joy, no matter the circumstances, and to say for him to live is Christ and to die is gain. It is his joy in the gospel that unites him to the Philippians, giving him joy in that partnership, despite the fact that he's hundreds of miles away, 800 miles away, imprisoned in Rome. He says, He's thankful to them. Paul will say to his friends in Philippi, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice because he is full of the joy of his salvation. Friends, do you know the joy of salvation? The joy of being set free from sin and death by the service and sacrifice of the Lord Jesus? Do you know the joy of the fellowship and participation that we have with the Holy Spirit that brings us into fellowship and participation with one another? Do you know that joy? Do you know the joy of the love of God with whom we are at peace? Friend, if you long for that joy and peace, put your trust in Jesus. And believer, this is your call. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Let's pray.